What's up, B? Hey, how is the training going for the 5K? It's been going pretty good. Um, You know, you got to really like, you don't need to go hard every day, but it is important to kind of like do, you know, 13 miles and like kind of break it up. Yeah. As you're training up, your body's going to be ready to like go through the arduous journey of like the full marathon. But uh, I'm really feeling good. And I got I got the advice also of a trainer that is going to help me get through it. I'm not oh. really here to compete. So I'm like, You're I'm not, here to, oh, yeah, I'm here not to do here to my compete, own thing. Mr. No, no, I'm like, um, I don't need gold. I'm just going to ask a trainer. I, I just wanted to get some good advice. You know, I want to like maybe someday get into this. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he uh, he gave me this premium uh, cocktail idea here. Um, it's just a little bit of ginger, a little bit of some protein powders, shake that up. And then uh, we also have some activated opium in here um, and a little bit of elderflower. What? For what? Just uh, this is going to. OK, so the opium. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to get tested. So like this is just to break the barrier. Um, but it is for like to open myself up to sort of like the meditative trance, like sort of endorphin state of running a marathon, just to open up that gate a little bit earlier so I can like really hyper-focus in on it. You do know that opium is a sedative, right? Well, is I mean... Is it working for a competitor? Uh, I think it's going to be okay anyway, so I'm going to like down this really quickly and... Welcome to Homegrown Oh, little freaks, welcome to another. We're breaking into the next hundred. I love that they're no like they're no longer homies, they're freaks. I'll say homies every <laughs> once in a while, but I do think I think it is hey, like you can at me. If you don't like little freaks, let me know. But I, I it's a term of endearment. <laughs> I'm be a co-host. I came up with the term little freaks. I love it. It's perfect. I'm Jackson. Uh, the other one. The other host. <laughs> oh, no. The other one. The other one. Uh. Oh, no. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, my gosh. It's fall now. You went to a fair yesterday. I did. I went to the Common Ground Fair. It was it was so nice. Um, last year, it felt a little muddled in terms. Of, we went on a Sunday. Lots of people ran out of stuff, like oh, okay. like muddled in terms of like people were just sort of like we forgot how to do this. <laughs> we forgot what logistics are um, because, like for example, I got you know around lunchtime. I'm like hmm, I feel a little hungry, so I went to Uncommon Taters. I think is what it was called, and you know baked potatoes. And I get in line and I order my potato and there's a huge line behind me and they're like, you got the last potato. Oh. I'm like, it is fully noon on Sunday. And it doesn't close till six. We're in Maine and you're saying we're out <laughs> of potatoes? potatoes? You're crazy. So last year we also Go really... get more. They're down the street. <laughs> La- actually, I'm sure there's some in the farmer's market right down there. Honestly. Last year we really wanted... Because everybody... Like everyone had sweet Annie flower crowns, and Allegra's like, I want one. By the time we found one, sold out. Damn, dude. We wanted to get like so last year. Uh, last year the lo- not the logo, but like the poster design was a raven, 
And we were both like, we need to get the bag. Because they have these messenger bags where like, we need to get one of the bags with this design on it. We really like it. Sick. And get there. Sold out. Oh my god! So I got put on a wait list. I got the bag. I have it now. I got the bag. But, I have uh, the bag. But yeah, it took a couple months and I was put on a wait list for the next printing of them. But yeah, so we were like, oh, like it is fully like they did not prepare enough. This no. year, the vibes were immaculate. Everybody, things were in full swing and it seemed like everybody kind of refigured out the logistics and then we were talking to people and they're like yeah I definitely you know sellers and vendors they were like I feel more established again mm, mm-hmm. I understand because especially with I think just trying to like re-navigate also as a consumer because I think a lot of people also just like we're like I'm gonna buy everything <laughs> yeah yeah okay so I think the demand has kind of gone down a little bit too. Like everyone still was was getting the sweet Annie flower crowns. Like we were in line and there was a there right. the line wrapped around. But I do think that for the most part, people aren't like, I need to buy everything I set my eyes on. And it's a little bit more, okay, I'm discerning. I can say this, like Allegra and I knew what we were gonna buy. We were gonna buy maple syrup, we were gonna buy honey. And then like Allegra also wanted the flower crown. Yes. And a pod money pillow. Yeah. She's like, this is what we're getting. And that's what we, I think we bought one extra thing as opposed to last year. We were just like, fill the bag. (laughs) (laughs) Fill it. So it was very fun. We uh, got to see some, you know, we uh, got to see, I cannot remember what they're called, but they, it was um, uh, Native American drum singers. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. I cried. It was so beautiful. Um, there's just so much, there's so much packed into that fair. Yeah. There really, really is. And I highly recommend going. We also, instead of parking and then walking, we took the train. Oh, nice. Highly recommend taking the train. It's a little bit more money, but also it's just really nice because you get to go through the woods. You get to go through some of the Mafka farmland. Yeah. And it was just. A pleasant little experience. It was so pleasant, especially since like. You know, I, this week has been really rough and I'm like, I don't feel like waiting in my, it's like, okay, am I going to wait in my car to park and then walk? And it's like this whole like thing or like, it's still, we still, it still took us a little bit longer to get there because we had to wait for the train and the train, but it's a nicer experience. And that's, you know, I think when you're going to spend some money and spend a good deal, you know, I have no money right now. That's why I didn't go to the fair. But <laughs> I feel like if you're going to go do something like that, yeah, you just want to enjoy the experience. And uh, I think it's good to sort of try to set money aside to be like, I want to make this day as enjoyable as possible. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, we've been planning. Like, we had been planning for a while. And we're not going to, a- we're not really going to any other fairs this year, mostly because we have a lot of other stuff on the docket and right. it's very difficult when all the fairs literally overlap. Yeah, Emily just mentioned to me that she wants to go to Freiburg. Um, yeah. And I was like, I thought it's- she said that, but I guess I ignored it previously. But anyway, I should be paid by then. And it's like, eh, yeah, because Freiburg, yeah, Freiburg goes That's through. That's a big to do. It goes through next weekend, but we're going camp. Allegra and I are camping. Yeah, you're going, we're camping. Camp- well, maybe we can do the following. I don't no, so it started, anyway. I think it started this weekend, goes no, through. No, it starts, uh, 
The first. Okay. Starts next so it's next weekend. Okay. So it starts next weekend. But I still can't go because Allegra and I are going to the Ren Fair on the 7th. <laughs> There's a Ren Fair? Yes. I told you about this. I think I'm just going to go to Ren Fair then. We're <laughs> talking off pod. Anyway. Yeah. We'll talk off pod about this. <laughs> Oh, we're friends. Isn't that what people like? (laughs) But yeah, so it's fair season. So Common Ground starts it. And then next week is Freiburg. And then the week after that is Cumberland. And then those are like the three big ones. And then, but you know, it's fall. (laughs) You know, it's fall, baby. And you know, it's fall because I'm staying inside playing video games. Yeah, yeah. I started playing Starfield, which is the new uh, Bethesda game. uh, That's like in space. You fly around. It's pretty chill. You know, I think it's a pretty easy game. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'll turn on survival mode. I heard that's a thing. Um, <laughs> and and try to make it a little bit more challenged. But I got a girlfriend. I actually have a wife in the game now. It's my boss in, a, in an organization. Hello, is this HR? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was but once I, but I Allegra's a... manager. Um, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't don't do it because sometimes work like home spills over into work and work spills over into home and it's a bad time. Yeah. Well, it was a bad time because I started like investing like, I don't know, conversations into talking with this character. Mm -hmm. And then I found a hotter character after. And I was like, ah, well, I would feel, I would weirdly feel bad about dumping my fake wife. There's a lot of people, because I was just watching someone talking about. It's like, why do I have a moral compass about this fake thing? Yeah. Yeah, But I feel bad. There's a new game coming out called like Fae Farm or something like that. It's Uh, like Stardew Valley, but with fairies, kind of. And, um. I was watching someone play it and they were like, well, I've already, you know, put all this in all of this into this, the first dateable character that I found, even though I'm much more interested in this hot fairy girl, this hot goth fairy girl. Oh, shit. Um, (laughs) I guess I'm stuck. (laughs) I feel like that'd be enough to be like, all right. The switch gears. Oh my god, it's really funny too, because people have been talking about save scumming with Baldur's Gate. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, People shouldn't care how I play my game. If oh, I want to like reset my game because I fucked up a choice, I, I'm gonna do it. I do save scum in like RPGs like that, like Baldur's Gate, Disco Elysium. I had a sort of save scum, uh, like file that yeah. I was doing, and it was because I wanted to like get all the lore. It was like a intelligence build, but anyway, no, save scum. It's fine. Do your thing. It's fine. Do what you want. Which leads us into us doing what we want, which is the Part two rest of the episode. Of, yes. And I think I had <laughs> mentioned last week that this was something that I was going to cover. And then Jackson was like, hey, we're going to talk about the Mental Health Institute. And I was like, fuck. Well, we, did, fuck. we didn't reveal that part of it. So, I, th- I thought I did. No, anyway, not really. So we, j- but it's, we made it, it seem worked, more planned. <laughs> nope. It worked out great, though, because... Yeah. It gave me the chance to finally be like, okay, I'm actually going to sit down and do it. So last week, we talked about the Kenny Beck Arsenal, which is part of the Agunta. <laughs> Agunta. <laughs> which was Agunta. part. Which is what. Sounds was, like a Star Wars language. Like that was part of the Augusta <laughs> Mental Health Institute, AMHI. So this week, we're going to talk about some more things about AMHI. <laughs> You're going to love it. Uh, there's a lot it. of information. I'm going to be including, I think, more sources than normal in the show notes because I am pulling. There's going to be a lot of reading this episode. But if you want to look at the full documents, 
or just do more further research because there's there's a lot. There is a lot. There's a whole slew of things. If you are interested and this is something that you care about, the history of mental health in the state specifically, highly recommend after this episode, go look at what I looked at. Put your eyes on these things. So during the time that the Institute was active, which was 1840 through 2004, 11,647 known deaths occurred at the institution, which we talked about last week. Did you know that that was one-fourth of the 45,000 patients that were there? I'm fucking sorry. So (laughs) 45,000 patients in its duration, in the whole history, that is one-fourth of the patients died. And as known, they were known to have died there. That's one-fourth what the fuck? Oh my gosh. I didn't think about it last week because yeah, it was only like peak the peak amount of people that you could have in there at any time was like 1500 to 1800. Mm-hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that's Yeah. Awful. And as we talked That's like too that's too much. Yep. That's too high of and odds to die. AMHI never kept any records of where they laid their patients to rest. As you mentioned last week, it is likely that many of them were buried in unmarked graves on the 800-acre property. So how did we get here? How did we get here? In October of 1840, the Maine Insane Asylum opened and admitted 133 patients by 1841. At this time, mental health was not well understood. And I am going to give Why are you, you so crazy? I've got I found this very excellent article from Barbara Floyd, which is called From Quackery to Bacteriology, the Emergence of Modern Medicine in 19th Century America. And she describes the state of mental health thusly. Dorothea Dix was a leading crusader for the establishment of state-supported mental asylums. Through her efforts, the first state hospitals for the insane were built in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. She and other reformers sought humane, individualized care where the rich and poor were housed together to ensure high standards for all. The movement was generated by social reform, but throughout the century, mental illness was probed and analyzed and cures, quote unquote, prescribed by both the scientific and lay communities. Moral treatment was the predominating philosophy for cure, uh, to cure the insane. This system was developed in the late 18th century Europe but, and by Benjamin Rush in the United States. It challenged the demonic explanations for insanity and emphasized the role of environmental, of the environment in determining character. Improper external conditions could induce derangement. The moral treatment system was optimistic that an appropriate environment could facilitate cure, especially for those with acute, not chronic, afflictions. Essential to this theory was a psychological basis for mental disorder. Insanity was caused by brain damage. The brain's surface was soft and malleable and physically altered by outward influence. This idea was closely related to phrenology, which assigned specific uh, faculties to sections of the brain. The notion that mental illness resulted from physical impairment was rarely challenged, but the nature and treatment of ailments were continuously debated. 
I, I do think this is funny that like, oh, the next gateway into better understanding mental illness is like a slight trickle up step up of like sort of but no like a phrenology and stuff like that which mm-hmm. is heavily based in racist ideology was, yeah. <laughs> yep. so it's like sure it's, it is kind of funny it's like you you remember learning about how old plague doctors would operate with like humors yes and like just understanding mm-hmm. what's the discharge someone is giving and like mm-hmm. oh you need to balance your humors and it's like that's fucking insane um this is basically like we're going d- demonic reasons this is our humors moment this, this is yeah <laughs> this is when they're like i don't think a demon is causing you to do this and, and then some victorian Surprise. hospital is like hey we learned that if we wash our hands less people die <laughs> To continue, to find physical evidence for mental deficiencies, autopsies were performed on mental patients to discover lesions or other abnormalities. Although progress was made in the diagnosis of somatic diseases like tumors or syphilitic derangement, these efforts were frustrating and subjective. Also controversial was the fate of the chronically versus the acutely ill. The differences between them, whether they should be housed together or whether the chronically ill should be treated at all. Superintendents of early menstrual institutions were well-educated, although not necessarily in medicine and active in the community. Thirteen heads of institutions called alienists formed the Association of Medical Superintendents and began the American Journal of Insanity. Asylums were built in rural areas. American Journal of Insanity sounds like an awesome band. (laughs) (laughs) Asylums were built in rural areas, see Augusta, to remove patients from their home environments and to provide fresh air in a bucolic setting. Patients were offered exercise, work, education, and religious instruction. Most alienists did not dispense drugs, but stressed healthy, clean living. They lived near patients and invited the public in for programs and promoted the view that the insane were not monsters, but rather unfortunate fellow beings. Focused on societal causes, alienists believed that mental health problems could be avoided, especially in the young. Children's brains were softer, vulnerable, and more prone to influence. After the Civil War, Faith in moral treatment declined because the curability rate had been overestimated. The cost of facilities was high, the government curtailed funds, and the public became disillusioned with experts and their failed promises. Fascinating. Which you had mentioned that about like how... Yeah, that happened back in um, what I was talking about and describing was like 50s into the 80s. So we've got these sort of, I guess you would call them like, not seasons, but like it's a it's a, a cyclical pattern yeah. of okay we have this thing that's probably going to work for these people oh no it doesn't pull the funds oh look we have this new thing that's going to help people oh no pull the funds yeah. and on and on it goes repeated failures also frustrated practitioners who responded with an increased use of physical restraint an influx of immigrants caused overcrowding and a less loss and a loss fee paying private patient a loss of fee paying private patients i can read as the medical field was slow to become interested in the care of the mentally ill there was a lack of trained personnel the original more idealistic practitioners were gone and new managers many of whom were political appointees were less inspired and qualified these alienists became self-protective and isolated from the public 
They also feared that, feared that moral treatment was responsible for the rise of spiritualist movements and considered fanatical and dangerous, and they further tightened the reins of custodial care, unquote. So that was a big old thing. Okay. So th- this is sort of the time when, you know, right after this, like, right in, like, because the Civil War ended in 1863. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the 1840s. Yeah. So we've got, th- this is sort of coming up in a very interesting time because we've got these moral treatments and the public favor is sort of waning on them. Yeah, everyone's like a little less enthused to be, hey, why are my dollars going to this? Or why do I have to share this space with this type of person or mm-hmm. whatever? I mean, it's the same conversation with like a lot of cities with homelessness right now. So it's, it's a mirror almost. And I think it's also worth noting that mental illness, at, mental illness, quote unquote, at this time covered a range of reasons from a recognizable diagnosis like schizophrenia, epilepsy, or bipolar, mm-hmm. to more dubious reasons like erroneous, rev- uh, erroneous views on religion, which one of the first patients at the Augusta Mental Health, or the main insane asylum, as it was called then, that is why she was there, her erroneous views on religion. Holy or, shit. Or, you know, being Native American or African American. Or my, here's my favorite, um, which was actually, this is pulled from an actual, like, log from a West Virginian asylum. Imaginary female troubles. <laughs> she has those vapors, you know. <laughs> so... I think that it's safe to say that there are some people who really do need help. And then there are some other things where it's like things you're, you just don't act the way that we expect. This woman's, this woman's claiming that she can climax like a man. Impossible. Impossible. (laughs) So now we, what is this this clitoris? I've never seen it. It seems like things are going pretty steady for the first decade in December of 1850. Part of the main building and two south wings caught fire and burned down, which led to the death of 27 patients and one attendant. Former patient Isaac Hunt described his, this in his 1851 expose. I have two, I actually have two sections here. I'll tell you when there's a break because they're from two separate sections in the thing. And that's when I can talk? Yes. Okay. Quote, <laughs> that was a dreadful night. The 2nd of December, dreadful in its present terrors and the melancholy in its results to the cause of humanity. The night was dark, the air heavy and damp. Dense clouds floated low in the heavens, and the winds from their ocean home wailed a mournful dirge over the expiring autumn. In its various darkness and desolation, about 3 o'clock a.m., we were suddenly awakened to the hoarse cry of, Fire! Fire! uttered under our windows and the ringing of our city church bells springing up and looking eastward just across the rolling tide of the Kennebec what a sight presented itself to the eye not one red glare of burning flame embracing the whole building to the mid heavens but worse more awful than that let the reader if he will imagine himself standing with us for a few moments of earnest inquiry at this midnight hour of gloom under the venerable oak white oak tree that spread its long and generous arms over the humble d- domicile of front 
See you those lurid flames whose flashes at times visible, but suppressed by the dense volumes of rolling smoke that encompasses them. Afford just gleams enough amidst surrounding darkness to enable us to see. Occasionally, at the least, the outlines of that noble structure. It is large and lofty edifice, a magnificent structure of the Kennebec granite, a handsome as marble several hundred feet in length, with a rectangular wing nearly as long on the south end, and four four tall stories high, including the basement and a tier of Lutheran windows on the slated attic. It is the noblest building in the state, but as but the morning light appears. And what are those black masses which the workmen have by the aided fire? Uh, by the aid of fire hooks drawn forth from the ruins, which are dragged and laid amongst the blackened cinders of the rear walls, many people are gathered around them. What are they? They are the bodies of the dead. The heads and arms and legs are burnt off, and nothing remains but the black charred trunks so that so lately contained the beating hearts of living men. The sight is loathsome. Let us turn away and leave the jury of inquest to perform their sad duties over these fragments of humanity, and in due time they will tell the public the whole tale of which produced this melancholic calamity. It is a state affliction. Pausing there for comments. <laughs> uh, what's a state affliction? The, the insane? No, he sa- what he's saying is the affliction is... Being burnt? The, the insane asylum. Oh, is a is oh, is a state affliction. Oh, oh that's not no. <laughs> okay. He uh, has so this guy. So he was a former patient. He has big opinions, well, and I will okay. say yeah. this particular document that I'm reading from, and I have another section. From, Weird takeaway though from like oh a bunch of dead people. Hmm. Like hmm, this state affliction. I guess I get no, what you're saying. No, so what so he's, he's he's upset with how the asylum is actually run to allow yes how many was it eight you said 27 27 i thought it was 27 28 total because one attendant also died right i will give you a spoiler now this document leads to an investigation oh shit quote 28 human beings with fond friends at home anxious for their restoration and happiness, have thus perished within the walls of that burning edifice. And it was not in your power nor mine, in no human power, to rescue or relieve them. Oh, may such a scene and such a lesson never be forgotten. Never indeed can it be. The question will be very naturally asked. Was all done that could be done to save these unfortunate beings from such a death? No. Could they or could they not have been rescued from that devouring element if they had been attended to in season? Had no delay been made in efforts to quench the fire? It would naturally seem to be the first care of the officers to look after the safety of the patients. According to the testimony of Mr. Smalley, the upper gallery attendant, before the coroner's inquest, he was the first to discover the fire, or rather the smoke, and that he went directly to the supervisor, Mr. Weeks, and awoken him, and then returned immediately to unlock the doors to the patient's rooms and induce them, in mild terms, to leave their rooms and the gallery and go to the veranda. It appears that he was not able to induce but two or three of them to leave, and all the rest perished in the flames. Oh my gosh. He says that Mr. Weeks, after going below and seeing the fire, directed him to keep still and not excite the patients. That he immediately returned to his gallery and was prevented again from entering on account of the dense smoke. 
By the testimony of Mr. Weeks, the fire had made considerable progress when he entered the hot air chamber and in the basement of the building. But he says that if he had given his attention immediately on being alarmed to removing the patients, he does not think that he could have rescued any more of them than he did. The fuck? No. I do not know, as he could, but it appears to me that every one of them might have been saved if he and the others had not stopped to throw water, as they said they did. I suppose they could have continued until the flames had gotten such uh, under such headway that they could not subdue them. And the whole building was filled with smoke so that it was impossible to remain any longer and thus perished 27 patients and one attendant. The question will naturally arise. What was the cause of the fire? Was it from carelessness in constructing a wooden hot air chamber or was it the work of an incendiary? Almost everyone says that it must have taken from the smoke pipe which passed through some wooden hot air chamber. And at one point, according to the testimony of Simon S. Bartlett, at the distance of only about two inches under the uh, floor timbers. So we have a, a pipe going through this yeah. wooden chamber yeah. and it's very close to the, the timber is mm-hmm. what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Would any person consider that to be safe? Who knew anything about smoke pipes? Would All would say that it was not and that the next question would be by whose orders was a wooden air chamber constructed in such a building? Where, uh, where there were from... 150 to 175 human beings exposed and liable to be burnt in case of the building was on fire. The answer is that it was constructed on the orders of and under the supervision of Dr. James Bates, the superintendent. Isaac Hunt hates this man. We're just putting that out there right now. (laughs) And the fire took from that cause. He is alone responsible for the destruction of that building and those human beings. Even the flues for conducting hot air to the galleries were made of pine plank and they were immediately on fire and conveyed the fire instantly to each of the galleries passing through those pitch pine floors. They were instantly in flames at about the same moment and it was like setting fire to tar barrels. Hence the dense smoke and the reason that each story of the building was on fire at the same moment, unquote. There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> basically like a bad judgment call on how you're supposed to be building this building. We've got bad judgment. Uh-huh. We've got the fact that I think there's also bad, bad judgment on the part of let's do all this pine and this wood and things, yeah. but also bad judgment on... There are people that I could be saving, but instead I'm going to throw a couple buckets of water. And oh, nope, now it's too smoky. I have to leave. I have to go. It's too smoky in here. It's too smoky. Ooh, it's so smoky. I also want you to put a pin in the, the idea that I think it's Mr. Smalley, Smiley Smalley. He said that he tried to rouse some of the patients, but they just wouldn't. So he's like, Wah, oh. That's all I can do. Yeah, I don't know how to... I want you to put a pin in that, please. Yeah, I don't know how to take that. I'm kind of like, really? Like they saw a fire and wouldn't fucking leave? I want you to put a pin in that. The fire led to a coroner's inquest, which would end with the jury deeming the fire an accident and that there had been sufficient action to take in to help those who had perished. Interestingly enough, something that was not taken into consideration were the condition... uh, Also, the conditions of the institution and how that could have played a role in the death of these patients. Well, yeah, because it's meant to be like a trap, basically. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to escape. So uh, not really good egresses available. Also, overcrowding was mm. always has always been a huge problem. Mm-hmm. A huge problem. 
And it's also believed that the patients were, had been confined. Okay. Physical restraints were used at this time. Yeah. They would have Ooh, been yeah. unable to escape even if they tried. They were like very... Oh, shit. They were very much grilled for using restraints, as I recall. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yep. Oh, no. At the time, these facts were overlooked, and the main... Overlooked? Yeah, the main insane asylum returned to business as usual. Remember the judge how I is said, like, there's just too many things to keep track yeah, of. Yeah, so here. overcrowding, big problem. In 1852, the institution could not manage their space, and they were unable to keep up with the influx of applications, and over 100 patients were denied entry. As time went on, multiple new buildings and wings were built, additional facilities, and even an entirely new hospital, but the problem was never properly mitigated. Now, so that's one issue. The other thing that we start to see, Isaac Hunt also discusses, so he was in the asylum from 1844 to 47, and because of this document, like I said, people started asking like questions like, what's going on in there? What's going in there? going on in there it's happening that what's, what's going on so he detailed the abuses that he and other patients experienced at the facility from the overuse of harmful drugs more pins put pins all over that as well as preventing patients from contacting the outside world by falsely telling their families oh isaac doesn't want to see you what the fuck that's not no that like, no. his brother came to actually take him home, and they're like, Isaac mm. really doesn't want to see you. He Isaac likes it here. loves it here. He loves it here. He loves it here. That's so fucked up. It's... <laughs> I mean, they did that in... Um, I mean, they did do that back in the, the 70s as well. The, yeah. In the 50s, they would, like, keep patients from and, leaving. And to be fair, you see it in the troubled teen industry now. Yes, you do. Because we saw it at the Elon school, too. Yes, you do. Hunt was explicitly told by his attending physicians that no one should ever know what happened in the walls of the asylum, which led him to believe that he may never be released. He attempted to appeal for his discharge, and he then had this conversation with Dr. Harlow, who was attending physician, and James P. Weeks, who is his supervisor, and they said, quote, Well, Mr. Hunt, what decision do you think the trustees have arrived at in regard to your case? I merely replied, I could not tell. They said to me, they have advised Dr. Bates to never allow you to see any person whatever with whom you have ever been acquainted. Unquote. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? You're never going to so, see anybody you know ever again. Why? Because he started asking questions like, interesting. What is this, the KGB? Yeah. So the main legislature took these allegations seriously. They opened up a investigation into the asylum i have no idea i cannot could not find any readily available documents that talk about what happened with this but it would not be the last time that the state opened another investigation in 1881 similar reasons the committee uh, of the legislature had a meeting which produced a 1389 page handwritten document which i started to go through the cursive is really hard to get through that's going to be in the show notes if you're good at reading cursive. Have fun. Have fun. 59 witnesses came forward to discuss the treatment of the institution's patients. Still not a lot happened. So what the fuck? What the fuck is happening? Right? <laughs> you ask. So we're going to take some of those pins out. Remember how I was like, 
There's a lot of pins you all know, over the ground. This guy said, you know, they just wouldn't get up. And then there's also this whole thing of like they want to go. being heavily drugged. So they would use morphine, chloral hydrate, succus alterans, and passion flower tinctures as sedatives, apparently indiscriminately. What are, they, what are they trying to sedate? Gorillas? <laughs> Not all together. It okay. was really funny because I had mentioned like... The, yeah, they just take all the ingredients and start shaking it up in a I little was cocktail like, shaker. I was like, oh, passion flora. Allegra's like, oh yeah, that's passion flower. It's very good for anxiety, but it it is not only... Okay, so here's the thing. Not only is passion flower and chloral hydrate good as a sedative, they both have a hypnotic quality. Oh, no. Okay. So... It's not hard to imagine that it would have been easier to keep patients lulled in a highly suggestive state if they are constantly on these medications. And if you believe Hunt, these drugs were used consistently and without sound reason. Like, it did not matter if you were violent or acting up. Everyone got these drugs. Like, in his thing, he says he showed up and they were like, Here's some morphine. That, that's, this, if you uh, don't take it, we will force you to take it. This was maintained throughout into the 50s and 60s as well. Like Correct. At, there was the pill line that all patients would have to go through. And it was like some kind of combination of like a sedative, basically. So that's the so when you think about this fire that occurred and they wouldn't get up, we're just going to ignore the fact that they're constantly sedated. Holy shit. Holy fucking shit. What are we doing here, guys? <laughs> and also... Allegra and I were discussing it. Here's just theory time. Wouldn't it have been better to release patients when they were well, since there were issues with overcrowding? Why are you trying to keep them there? But here's my theory. Was the number of patients tied to the amount of funding they received from the state? Question mark. Mm, Question mark. Because if you are constantly full. Yeah. Like, what reason do they, I mean, besides not wanting people to know what's going on there, what other reason do they have for keeping you if... If their capacity <laughs> is dependent on the state I funding. also feel like you... That I mean, also, that's how we treat a lot of private prisons now. Yes. Is that they'll receive some kind of dollars from the state feds to keep people there or to keep mm-hmm. up to capacity. But like they get a certain amount of. You also person. have to consider the fact that some 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 patients are there because they are court ordered to be there, but you're just not pre- you're preventing everybody, including private patients who willingly entered the ho- the hospital. Yeah, you can't go home. You can't transfer to an. We're not going to let your parent. You know, if your family wants to take you out, you're not allowed. That's crazy. That's insane. Like, holy shit. So, what else do we have? We've got drugs up the wazoo. Woo! It's a party now. We have experimental treatments through the years that ranged from benign, like, hydrotherapy and electric dry needling. I looked up electric dry needling because it sounds terrible, but it is something that they still use to controversial. What's hydrotherapy? Hydrotherapy. You know how you, when a dog gets injured and they put them in the water so they can, like... Oh, that's hydrotherapy. That's hydrotherapy. I <laughs> yeah. thought that was just like a component of physical therapy. That's funny. Yeah. Controversial, like cupping 
the way that the article, the Portland Press Herald article that mentioned oh, cupping the cupping, is the, it was the, like, like weird. Yeah, it sounded like medieval torturey, but people do it now. I don't know if they were being reasonable with it. Cupping sounds like a sexual thing. It does, and then also opiate therapies, which highly <laughs> controversial in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Get fucked up, buddy. <laughs> to and also including the barbaric, like electroshock, and the the one that drives me. Because we talked about it during Constance Fisher, insulin therapies, where they're they are just pumping you full of insulin, in tandem with the electroshock. <laughs> we don't know what this does, but we're gonna fill you up with it. <laughs> it's crazy. An anonymous couple that worked on staff during the 1950s discussed their experiences in an interview. Quote, the electric shock treatment was a big thing. That was once a week unless they needed it oftener or if anyone acted up or too violent and they just felt like they needed it. They'd go to the upper stone and they would line up. I mean, there was no privacy and such. What would happen is they would lie in bed. They'd put electrodes on. Someone would have to hold them because they would have convulsions. And everyone that was in line, all the other patients, and a lot of them didn't want it, you know. No, no, no. But there was no sedation. They just had it. But the ones that were acting up or whatever, they had to go. Girl, they didn't get act- your electrodes on. Show me your flailing song. <laughs> They didn't act up as much. They were better. The insulin therapy, I don't think that lasted too long. I don't remember how long. They just kind yeah, of phased it right? out, unquote. <laughs> so the other thing about this particular thing is saying like, so this is all out in the open. Everyone, yeah. it's the same as the pill line. Everyone's lined up and you're just watching your fellow, you're watching what's happening. Of course you wouldn't want this. You know, he said, they're saying no, they, did, they didn't want it and they behaved after that. And it's like, Yeah, no shit. Literally torturing people. What is happening? In the 50s, they introduced Thorazine, which is a drug that's used for treating schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And that actually helped to phase out both electroshock and insulin treatments, which, good. But that doesn't mean that things got any better. Through the closing of the facility in 2004, there was always seemed to be a lack of care for the patients. Golly okay, gee, so <laughs> the one understatement. So, so I have, I have a couple, I have a couple um, excerpts from interviews that I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to tell you who they're from, when they were there, any other information that you'll need. Um, but this is just gonna, and I've, I put them in chronological order, so. This is, I have two excerpts, two or three excerpts from an anonymous man. A lot of people wanted to remain, remain anonymous also, uh-huh. which I think is interesting because we have the anonymous couple as well. He was the first child at the Mental Health Institute at the age of 15. And this was I in- feel like that makes you unanonymous when you say that, though. When you put That's place true. and time. Someone could it's figure like, it out. Yeah. Youngest child, age of 15. Well, let me go into these records here. Yeah. Yeah. So this was in 1955. Dr. X, who was a very frightening character. Jesus as I Christ. Found... Yeah, Dr. X. No, that's, a, that's, that's for anonymous. That's to, <laughs> oh, to keep the okay. doctors. So Dr. X. I was like, Professor Xavier, here? what are you doing here? <laughs> as I found out over the years, he was a very big man. He was very heavy handed. And when he came into the wards, he wanted people to be afraid of him. 
We were afraid of him. I had to sleep by the office being a child and I didn't know why then. I figured it out later on. He used to come in and holler and scream at me and call me scum and trash and put me in a circle with nurses in the center and he would do everything he could to make me feel unworthy of living or breathing the same air. And he frightened me. I wasn't the only one I guess he did this to. I know that I can only remember him doing this to me. He would threaten me with shock treatments, though he never did that, unquote. So that's one section. Here's the other one. And there were people that worked there. You just have to realize that they're, on they're only there for one reason, to get a paycheck and go home. And that's the extent of their vision. A lot of social workers at AMHI and the psychologists that I had to deal with and the psychiatrists, which changed all the time, I felt I I felt had no more ability to deal with the people with who had psychiatric problems than I would walk into the operating moon and room and do general surgery. They just weren't equipped. They weren't interested enough. I felt the attitudes of some of the psychologists. I knew some of them worked there forever. They were mental health workers. They'd take a test or two and put a pin on what the psychologist said, but they took those boards and could never pass them. Why? I don't know. They just weren't that gifted. They had a very negative effect on many patients. They had a negative effect on me. I could never figure out why it was my negative lifestyle that was the total problem or if it was the result of how I was living that just gave them ammunition to behave more negatively towards me and my life. I could never really put a pinpoint on that. It got to the point where they had patient advocates, which I think was a good thing in many ways, but there used to be battles between these patient advocates and the abuses that some of the staff would heap on patients. I was never one. I felt defenseless. I felt no matter what hospital I was at, I was unworthy, and I remember Dr. X, and that I was unworthy to fight back and speak my mind, unquote. Damn. This is, like, very... Uh, this conjures, like, thoughts about the uh, Stanford prison experiment. Same, Holy shit. <laughs> like, same situation where it's like yeah. you have this dynamic of the, you know, the the wardens and the guards versus the prisoners, prisoners being the patients in this situation, where the guards, the doctors, the nurses are just heaping abuses on the prisoners here. And they also aren't, like, they aren't, at this point, they're not well-trained. No. They are sort of just thrown into this, and it's like, this is their paycheck. I don't think these people, some of I these, would, some of these people, because I think there are, most people also had at least one or two good things to say about like one person that had a positive effect on them. Those are rare, it seems like. I think there's got to be like a heavy amount of disillusionment among the staff here, like mm -hmm. apathy, because we're talking about 1950s now. This was like the worst period, one of the worst periods for like mental health uh, awareness and like treatments. And uh, yeah, I agree. There's probably, yeah, there were probably a bunch of people there that were just for a paycheck. But I also imagine like people and these health professionals, they're spending their lives studying psychology and then getting into this field. Maybe there was passion at some point, but then it died quickly seeing what is the normal every day-to-day -day life inside of these facilities. Like, if you dedicate your whole life towards a field of study and then go into a facility and realize no one gives a fuck, what does that do to your, like, it, mental health right there? Up. I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, people either say they're going to fight it and then burn out, or 
they go they get right into the moment the monotonous like momentum of abuse that these people are also experiencing i'm not saying like these are great people they're pieces of shit um but there's got to be a reason why it was so fucked up i mean like the one head doctor screaming at people constantly. That reminded. That also reminded me of the Elon school. Yeah, I mean, like, if the head is out there starting the abuse mm-hmm. and, like, and everyone's just there for money, they're going to suck up to this asshole loser and, and be like, yeah, Richie Rich, I'm, I'll follow you, man. Mm-hmm. Karen Evans was admitted in the 60s at 17 years old after being diagnosed with schizophrenia. Quote, I have many scary memories of AMHI. I believe that most of the negative memories were because of the warehousing that happened, because of overcrowding, along with paternalistic attitudes that didn't allow room for individual rights. Most, my most prominent, the most prominent memory was of a ward with 30 beds with women anywhere from age 15 to 80, headboard to headboard with each other. I, a young girl of 16 or 17, being placed in a bed next to a woman who had killed her five children. Wait a minute. What the fuck? Is that Constance Fisher? Yeah. I know I spent a lot of time in seclusion, and I believe it was my way of dealing with my own voices and the fear of what this woman in bed next to me might do. I remember shock treatment day when you didn't have any rights, especially the right to refuse shock treatments if you were court committed. So those women on my ward would try to run to the shower to get our hair wet. In those days, if you didn't, uh, they didn't have blow dryers. And if your hair was wet, they couldn't shock you. I remember the look on the women's faces after the shock treatments, the sense of lost souls walking around. I remember a female friend I had made one night telling me that she would rather be dead than live the way that we were forced to live on the unit. You were treated like herded sheep not individuals. As long as you went with a herd master, life was okay. But if you dared think for yourself, you found yourself in trouble. In other words, seclusion. I remember the next I remember the next morning I went to a room. I can't remember why she wasn't on the ward. She even had her own private room. I entered. She had her head through the bar, proceeding to break the glass with her fist and placed her jugular vein on the broken glass. <sighs> Blood was everywhere. Yet the staff called some sort of code and all of us were told to go sit down in the living room. I don't know whether she lived or died. We were all we're not allowed to talk about it. That's just allowing us grieving. I do know she never returned to the unit. She later told Kelly Bouchard for PPH. They took her away and I never found out what happened to her. It was, it happened more than once when I was there, but she affected me the most. It felt that people disappeared overnight, that life could be dismissed so easily, unquote. Oh my fucking goodness. And I mean, this is recent history now we're dealing with here. Um, I read of Kelly Bouchard's shit all the time. She's great. Yeah. Um, also, so Karen Evans, a yeah. lot of the other interviews, these people are all interviewed by her. Oh my god! Because she, you'll I, I talk about it a little bit later, but she has done a lot of advocacy after, um, in recent years. Because I think a lot of these, ha- I think a lot of these were done in the 2010s. I hate this. Yeah, <laughs> Marilyn Foss was a patient in 1974, 85, and in the 1990s. She kept bouncing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quote, the seclusion rooms, I don't think they'll ever get rid of them. I think they're going to have new ones because when they bring patients in, they brought me in one time with chains on my ankles, handcuffs on my hands, and threw me into seclusion. What the fuck? They don't walk you in. They drag you in. You are in that seclusion room for about two or three days. 
If you have to urinate, you urinate on the floor. That's another thing I would like to see up there. They have to come out of there and have to go to the bathroom. They should have the right to do so instead of being like a dog and doing it on the floor, unquote. Also, for context, she's talking about um, Riverview. When they were building Riverview, she's like, I don't think they're going to get rid of the seclusion rooms. But they should have bathrooms. Yes, Marilyn, I agree. Huh. And that's, again, that's 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, it's bewildered, perplexed. You're not going to get better here. No, that's the thing that's so frustrating. Yes, it's like, <laughs> he's mad. I'm mad. I'm fucking mad. Susan Anderson was a patient for three months in 2002. Quote. I was very nervous at the mention of AMHI. You know, there's a stigma about AMHI. So when I went in there, my eyes were twitching extensively to the point I couldn't even see. They told me that they were taking me in to have to shower in the shower room. I went in and there was a new girl that was on. She had blondish brown hair and glasses. I can't remember her name, but she escorted me to the shower room. She would not let me have the bar of soap and a washcloth. I had to ask for it. She kept watching me have a shower. She wouldn't close the curtain and allow me to have a shower. There was nothing there that I could hurt myself on, you know. I mean... But she did not need to watch me dry off. She did not need to watch me hand me soap when I needed the soap, hand me shampoo when I needed shampoo. She could have just given it to me and I could have taken a shower privately. But she did not allow me to do that. She did stand there and watch and observe me. And I felt like my confidentiality and my privacy was completely blown apart at that point. That was when I was first coming in, unquote. Oh my God. And that's the most recent one that I, I pulled from. So that's... 2002. Can they like even, I wonder uh, today, like I know there's a lot of wards where they really cannot leave you alone. Right. And this woman was being admitted for um, self-harm. Yeah. But so they have to like observe, they do have to observe you. But I do wonder well, how much does it take to be like, hey, you're in this this room that is secure and here, pull the curtain. I'm going to be here. Like, I will be right here. I will be right here. I think here. being on the other side of the curtain, you can respond fast enough. Yes. Yes. That's what I'm saying is like, give people some fucking dignity. No. So main.gov has way more interviews and stories. Again, those will be in the show notes. A lot of them were done, but uh, were interviewed by uh, Karen Evans and there's more about specific uh, staff members, doctors, aides, patients, a lot of a lot of these stories do mention these people saying they had a positive effect on me. But it's really interesting because in some of them, they're like, oh, yeah, it was mostly positive. And then they would like offhandedly mention something totally like so out of pocket. But they're like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. And I'm like, it's almost like they were gaslit because they're like, well, I'm better now. Yeah. I'm better know, for it. And I'm like, are you? It's kind of. Not to say. Very similar but, to some of the um, some of the takes we've heard from former students through the Elon, Elon school. school. Like some of them would even say, "Like, yeah, well, I'm better for it." And it's like they're like, "Oh yeah, this shit was awful, but I am better." And I'm like, "You know." <laughs> it's nice. It's nice to read those ones where they're like, "They are better now. They are. They're doing. 
better they have found but at the same time it's like i wish that they didn't have to go through that but you didn't well, like, have to go through that but more so like they're fine with justifying their experience i know was the ones that were most yeah it hurts yeah it I also hurt. i wanted to come back around to amhi's forgotten dead karen has also turned her tra- trauma as well into a passion for justice by working with the main cemetery project to establish a memorial for those who died within the walls of the institution. Yeah. The 11,647 that we know of are actually a small fraction of the 300,000 people that perished at the hands of the American mental health system and have long been forgotten by time. This article by Kelly Bouchard that was talking with Karen it actually went into, like, it named several other facilities, some that are defunct, some that are still active, that, again, they just, when people died, you just bury them. Yeah. And we don't know where. Three, yeah, 300,000. 300,000 that we just, we're just, we don't care. That's insane. So, I mean, like, I, I don't want to go into a whole thing here, but it's just like we're so comfortable in this country with just throwing people away mm-hmm. that don't fit the mold. And like this is a very extreme example here, but it's like there are a lot of like people that are treated as second class citizens within this country. Mm-hmm. So. Um we don't need to get into yep. it. <laughs> so these unmarked or mass graves are an overwhelming problematic practice that most asylums and institutions through history have participated in. And it's, I'm very happy that they have done so much work for these people. The memorial was unveiled in 2015. And also there, I'm going to also put this, in the show notes, which is the list of all of the no- all the people that are on the memorial and no- known to have died at the institution. So that will be there if you're interested in looking. Um, and mental health in Maine, it's gotten better. But personally, I think that there is still a really long way to go. Yep. And um, so in order to wrap this up, put a little bow on it, and also make a point, going to drive it home, we're going to play a game. oh boy a game on such a fucking bummer of an episode all right let's get into it how how wrong am i gonna be today so jackson Mm -hmm. for the first three you are going to give me the name of the movie oh okay in 2011 Zack snyder's 82 million dollar fantasy romp starring emily browning in an insane asylum barely yep barely made back its budget Winona Ryder, Angelina Jolie, Elizabeth Moss, Jared Leto, Brittany Murphy, and Whoopi Goldberg make up the cast for this 1999 drama that takes place in a New England psychiatric institution. (laughs) Wow. I don't think I've seen this one. Um, Cast again? Sorry. So it's Winona Ryder, Angelina Jolie, Elizabeth Moss, Jared Leto, Brittany Murphy, and Whoopi Goldberg. No idea. Girl Interrupted. Oh, shit. Yeah. This 2003 Halle Berry vehicle is about a Connecticut psychiatrist that finds herself incarcerated in the hospital she works in. Oh, what was this? Oh. 
This is so familiar. Halle Berry? Mm-hmm. Fuck. Sorry. Yeah, go, give it to me. It's Gothica. I wouldn't have gotten the title. Okay. <laughs> How, okay, so these two, you're just going to give me the number. How many Batman films feature an asylum? Um. Wow, that's hard, actually, because... Uh, my brain is broken. And these are just Batman. I'm not including Joker. You're not including Joker. Not inc- I'm not including things that have this. These are Batman specific movies. Just Batman. That have Batman in the title. Okay, so I think I'm I'm going through. I want to say th- three or four. Seven. Oh fuck! So almost all of them then, I guess. I can't remember the Asylum. I know in the older ones, the Tim Burton ones, they featured... Fuck, no, yeah, it would have been closer to that. I could have said five. I wouldn't have gotten seven, though. Now, Jackson, if you get this right... Wait, does the fucking pit um, count? No. Okay, in in the third Nolan one? No. Okay, that's not... No. The, that's a prison, The, the yeah. list, yeah, the list only included Batman Begins. Oh, how many times? Wait, no. Batman Begins. Um, that's just the one film. How many times an asylum was depicted? In, in a Batman movie. Just, just, okay. So in so, Begins, it was seven times? No. Wait. Oh, they're just up to Batman Begins. Yeah, Batman be out of the Nolan films. They just include a Batman Begins. Yes, as having an asylum. Oh, so it'd actually be more then because it would probably be eight. Because in the most recent Batman with Robert Pattinson, they go to Arkham Asylum at the end. Okay, I don't think they included that one on the list. It might be. So you might be right. I can show you them afterwards and we can discuss. But... Jackson, you can still pull this out because I've got one more question for you. I'm the pullout king. Let's and, go. And we're going to, this is this is to drive my point home. Okay. Okay. How many entries do you think that there are on the Wikipedia list for films set in a psychiatric hospital? Films set in a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. In How many is, does Wikipedia have listed? Um... It's going to be a lot. I mean, that's that's honestly a lot. Uh, it's got to be like... Because there's so many fucking movies that are just like I've never seen before. And, they're in the, and there's a whole fucking horror genre that's so focused on asylums. And there's so many B movies that are focused on asylums. I, I, I'm going to lose here. Thousand. Oh, damn. Just 218. Oh, <laughs> god damn it. All right. <laughs> My point being, because this is just films. We're not talking TV or anything like that. Right. I had mentioned last week the fact that I think it's the thing for me is... Why are we so obsessed with this when the state of mental health in our country is fucked up? I think that's a driving point, though, in the Batman movie. I don't want to just talk about that. I'm sorry. I'm really hung up on Batman. You know what? Here's the thing. I preferred your take last week where it's like, you know, I think that one flew over the cuckoo's nest really gave an insight. Now it's like, you know what? Batman really made a good point. No, 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 no. I'm saying, (laughs) what I'm saying is like, the Batman, Batman's kind of fucked up. I'm not saying Batman's making a good point because the whole <laughs> thing is that Batman is, in essence, 
beating up the mentally ill. Like yes, he I've is seen just that, doing that. I have that. seen that take before. You're correct. He, the person that makes that take is not wrong. <laughs> like no, this it's is true. not helping these people. It's true. Like, but also, he, Batman is beating up the mentally ill because the state of the mental health facilities available to the city of Gotham is ill-equipped to handle your Riddlers and Jokers and Scarecrows of the world. You know. So I think that. Doesn't mean that he doesn't mean that Batman's justified in beating insane impu- uh, people up, but like there is an element of others are in danger. I don't know. So I, I'm not here to justify Batman's actions. No, he, I. But for me, know. it's like. Yeah. No, I'm gonna come out here with a really hot take here. Bruce Wayne needs to pay his taxes. I like that hot take. <laughs> so I. The other thing for me is like so 218. And when, when, when did we get the first, like, when did movies become a thing? Like, think about the fact that that's probably, like, more Ever than one. Ever since that train. It's like, there's more than one a year, probably. About movie? A movie about an asylum. Because oh, okay. we just, no. <laughs> there's probably more than one movie or TV show a year that comes out about an asylum. Yeah, We've got haunted definitely. asylums. We've got like, oh, the inner workings of like a mental institution. Like You got Legion, which is like an asylum for mutants and all that. Yeah, we're, we are kind of obsessed with it. And, and you look at our media and there are some things Big that I think... tropes around asylums, you yeah, know? I think that there's so much that we are obsessed with that I don't know if we're exploring it because it's a, a more realistic fear like, because even in, like, for example, Grave Encounters, which is a found footage horror film, one of the big things is fucking, there's a doctor experimenting on people. I, Grave Encounters is, like, my number one. Really? It really is. I lo- okay, because it was, like, I saw Blair Witch, it was, eh, whatever. But, like, Grave Encounters nails the found footage like horror movie style perfectly Mm -hmm. and i love how much of a piece of shit the like host is of the show i think he's so he's so fucking funny like because he has that stupid like chris angel mind freak asshole aesthetic to him you mean zach baggins yeah zach baggins asterisk asterisk don't come at me zach (laughs) he's gonna sue our ass now uh but like it's just that perfect focus, and I, I think the whole movie is, like, brilliantly done, you know? Yeah. And the scares and I, are pretty good. And I know, like, because there's also the other one I think of is American Horror Story Asylum. Yeah, I watched that one. So, for it's, I think there is this fear of being out of control in the sense where, like, you're put, like, people are not going to believe you. Like, that's scary for some people. Yeah. But I think it's also worth noting that there's still a stigma with mental health. Yes, 100%. And there are still people who are admitted to institutions and are not well allowed to leave here, and are abused. To bring it more into sort of almost a political uh, idea here behind yeah. mental illness, talk about like this idea right now that I think is kind of um, that I've been seeing spreading among uh, people my age, men specifically, uh, and younger, is like this manliness aspect, like... You know, your David Goggins, your Andrew Tates, your Crowders. They're purporting this idea of like not really seeking help and talking about your inner thoughts and feelings and problems that you're experiencing. Because it's like, you got to be a man. You got to just deal with that shit. It's a very toxic masculinity thing that's like, I still think is like hanging on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, where, whereas like, no, it's very natural to talk about like what's ailing you and what your problems are. Because if you didn't spend time talking with somebody or a doctor even, just to even like say, hey, I know that I have a problem and I should deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like to not do that is such a failing on your part. But like there is a big wave, I think, right now, basically to among men specifically to not listen to your inner feelings and just be this hyper masculine part of yourself. That's just all about the hustle to basically ignore your problems um, and then, you know, inevitably, like some of these assholes will do, beat their wife. So, because they can't fucking handle their emotions. It's, yeah. Mental health is so important. I'm happy that there is less stigma, but there's still, there's still so much. Yeah, for sure. And this is also coming from somebody who I also denied the fact that I had problems for a long time because I was, I was like, no, that's not me. No, I'm normal. <laughs> It's, it is normal to not be okay. Yeah, it's normal to not be okay. It's like you don't have – every day is not you being a million bucks. And you're, you don't need to be so hyper-focused on like being better than your mental health because that's fucking stupid. If you have problems, you have anxiety, you have depression, it's normal to go talk about it. Talk to a doctor. Shit. I mean like go find you know whatever solution might be available to you. Talk therapy works for some. Sometimes it doesn't work for others. I've done talk therapy. I didn't keep up with it because it's like what it did help me do was recognize what my problems actually were. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't need to go back. And like maybe I will go back someday, but it's not something that I'm trying to seek out right now. But it's like the thing is, is like these professionals and these people like went to school for this very reason to try to help you. They're resources that you can access. Like, so don't be afraid to go do that. And don't, and I also urge you to not be afraid of people who have more extreme mental illness. Yeah. Like people who have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or um, just anything. They, they are not, it's, they just want to exist. People just want to exist. We're all human. And please recognize the humanity in other people. Um, You know, and there are great, like, the people that do care that work in the mental health field, they're good people. But I think that the people who are not treating their patients well, and especially in state-run institutions, I want those people to be held accountable. 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And we should care about that because not everybody is able to just go to a therapist and say, you know, I feel great. You know, I feel good that I did this. I'm going to take some of these things, but I don't have to go back for a little while. And I think that we also really need to care about those people too. So just yeah. keep that in mind as you're moving through and consuming specifically th- this kind of media, but also as you're listening to true crime podcasts because i think armchair diagnoses get tossed around a lot and it is a little ableist that's my ted talk <laughs> just but, but think let's, about it but that's just to dial it back really dial it in here like you and me we're around the same age yes <laughs> and i hear like older generation folks sort of say like well your generation is weak 
And I've literally heard that. And I'm like, dude, we all formatively watched two planes smash some buildings in the middle of Manhattan. We've had a lot of collective trauma. We've watched once in a lifetime financial crashes happen every 10 years. Uh, (laughs) We've Mm -hmm. been... We've, we're, we're constantly bombarded with news of how our ecosystem is collapsing and, you know, our children are going to be fighting in the fucking water wars, you know? So we've got some shit we're dealing with here, man. You know, like, to just disca- discount people, it's insane. It's like, oh, you guys are weak. Yeah, we didn't need to go through a world war to realize how shit everything is around us. Anyway, it's <sighs> a, we're, we're all in this bullshit. I mean- we're all in this awful, awful that- hell world. So we're all doing our best and let's all work together to be better than ourselves, to help each other out and fucking finally live in a world that is meant to be lived in. I love that. I'm just fucking ranting. I know. But <laughs> this episode has made you a little upset. I'm very upset. Like- yes, I got actually angry at one point. I got so angry. I did a little gorilla grunt. <laughs> Uh, but I think even though it's one of those things where it's like, it's, I think for a lot of stories that we cover, it does seem like sometimes it is easier to sweep things under the rug. And I am, I think I mentioned last week, there is a part of me that is a little surprised, but kind of the bar is very low. The fact that there is, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of these came from main.gov. They're housed on the main.gov server. I appreciate them being I, forthright with the information. too. How often do we get upset when our government fucking lies to us? Happy that the, it's just out there. You yeah, know? they're like, you know, we we know this is fucked up. We know this is fucked up and we're trying to do better. The, fir- the, the first thing you <laughs> need to do to do better is to admit that you are wrong. Wrong. You know, unlike, uh, what was it, the University of Maine that up until, like, last year was like, yeah, it was totally fine that we tar and feathered two African-American students. Why wouldn't that be okay? They brought it on themselves. Don't take that out of context, because I obviously sound angry about it. Like. Oh, my God. So, there is something to be said for the fact that, like, they are housing a lot of this information. But I highly encourage you, if you are interested in this, if this is something that you really care about, look at everything you can. Go do Look it. at all of the sources. Like, I, there are so many, there's, I, I read a lot and there's still more. I cut things. There's a whole section that I actually skipped past because I was like, I think where we're at in the conversation, I think this doesn't fit anymore. But 10 out of 10. If, if mental health is something that you care about, the mental health in Maine specifically, if you live here in Maine or even in your own state, because I know like, I, you know, the way people talk about, you know, their local institution is sometimes sketchy at best. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, you Speaking just, of local institutions, institutions, it's time for our next Mainism. Hey, hey, it's a Mainism. <laughs> terrible (laughs) yeah i mean it was the best i think this is the best transition we could find between these two points so Mm -hmm. thank you for saying that That just latched onto that like a little crocodile (laughs) 
we'll get there. <laughs> That's going to be our next episode of recording for the bonus. Check it out, folks. We are currently standing for this because we've been sitting the whole episode and we live sedimentary office jobs. So it's good to stretch your Sedimentary, legs. like a rock? Fuck you. <laughs> Set, what is it? Sedentary. Damn it! <laughs> I said sed... Oh, I feel like a fucking idiot. I said keep- sedimentary to someone recently. I'm keeping that in. No one... No, they didn't say shit to me either. <laughs> oh, they let me be dumb. I hate that. Whatever. Thank you for correcting me. God, I, that guy's like, wow, oh, he's such a dumbass. <laughs> so we're talking about a main institution. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. That's what we're talking, talking about. <laughs> so we're talking about the famous B&M baked beans. B&M baked beans, a Your main staple. Baked beans. Oh my God, don't get me started. I had a bad camping incident where I just ate a I think we all remember. Oh, it was awful. I felt like I was being stabbed. It was terrible uh, for two days. Yeah. So anyway, beans, my favorite. But this is an important landmark within the the city of Portland, Maine. The uh, B&M Baked Beans Factory has been a staple of Portland, Maine for a long while. Its facility, uh, its factory has stood for a good 110 years overlooking the Casco Bay with its iconic B&M, brick oven baked beans, nice red sign. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, you drive by it all the time. You've seen it before if you've lived in town for a while. But unfortunately, as of September 12th, 2023, the age of an era has come. Uh, wait, the end of an era has the come. The age of an era. I fucking hate everything. You're doing so good. I'm doing great. You're you doing know great. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. You know what you're gonna do when you go home? You should go and listen, like, watch some of the worst Miss America interviews. Sometimes when I go home, I, I mean, those are good. But sometimes I like to watch like newscaster bloopers. Oh, I love newscaster bloopers. The one that like makes me cringe, but also laugh a little bit, is when the lady's like stomping grapes on top of the. <laughs> platform she lands and her yelps of pain are still in my brain Whoa, oh. <laughs> it's awful uh, it's but awful no, you're doing good okay thank you you're welcome. i needed that affirmation <laughs> you're welcome why is my nose so itchy so sorry the sign is it's coming down and the whole facility is actually being closed of course yeah with that symbolic taking down of the sign it was announced in uh 2021 that uh, the owner of a uh, m would be shutting down the century-old plant uh, and spreading out production of the baked beans across several other plants so this was a central facility for a long time but is no longer needed as redundant not needed for capacity. Also, I'd imagine it being like close to Portland downtown, a little bit of upkeep for that facility. Mm-hmm. So instead, the property was sold to Northeastern University's Rowe Institute, a graduate educational institution focused on digital engineering, genomics, and life sciences. That facility is, uh, that building's now going to be taken over by the college or this institute going to be transitioned into some uh, facilities for the campus. Oh, okay. Um, That's I knew better that than a hotel. Better than a hotel. Good that it's uh, for 
something kind of needed. I mean, engineering, digital engineering, you know, yeah. life sciences needed in the state. You know, there's a big brain drain around here. So uh, kind of any kind of opportunity to build up, uh, you know, campus facilities is always welcomed. So that's uh, that's kind of all I got for you. But I mean, it is a big deal. It's a huge. Yeah, it's I mean, it overlooks 295. So yeah. So it's, it's been an iconic building for a long time. Kind of uh, daunting, I'd imagine, for people to see it go away. But, uh, you know, all good things come to an end. Mm-hmm. Even the gas from those beans. <sighs> well, thank you all for coming to part two <laughs> of our 100th episode special. Now we're at 101. So thank you all for 200 more. Another two years. We'll get there. Thank you all so much. If you have any um, comments, if you have stories about, you know, anything that we talk about, including the Augusta Mental Health Institute, you can always reach out to us at homegrownhorrorpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at homegrownhorrorpod. You can always uh, leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. And now on Spotify, there is a cute and a at the bottom. Yeah, it's the bottom-ish. Bottom I don't know. Like, it kind of is the bottom. It's the bottom-ish. Yeah. So you could, like... Scroll down there. Give us a question. Email us. Be like, I, you know, tell us what you thought of this episode. Um, also, hi to all of my coworkers that are listening now. Some oh of them have goodness. given me stories that I am very excited to dig into. I've started looking at some of them, and they are interesting. So I'll give them shout-outs when we get there. But thank you all for also coming to listen, because I just mentioned it at work, and it makes me very happy that you did come to listen. I heard someone said that they liked our audio quality. Yeah. And I got so fucking happy. Yep, that was Sarah. It's, Hi, Sarah. <laughs> it, thank you very much, Sarah. Audio is such a pain in the ass. So it's nice to hear that someone's been appreciating it. And especially those who, those listeners that have been with us since the beginning will know. Know how was, much we sucked ass. It, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a long haul, but we're so excited for all of you to be here, new and old. And we look forward as we head into our third year. So thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye.